Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate people in and around the wonderful world of product management. If those sound like the sorts of conversations you want to be a part of, why not lend us your ears and come and join me and some of the finest thought leaders and practitioners in the world on onenightinproduct.com, where you can sign up to the newsletter, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or follow the podcast on social media, and guarantee you never miss another conversation again. On tonight's episode, we ignore Elvis Presley's advice and have a little more conversation, or rather a conversation about conversation design. What on earth is conversation design? Are all conversations designed whether we want to design them or not? How can we make sure we're fostering psychological safety in our organisations and designing the right kinds of conversations to have with our colleagues? And is it possible to debug our conversational operating system and make sure we don't crash and burn in that next big meeting? For answers to all these questions and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Daniel Stillman. Daniel's a coach, facilitator, and conversation designer who says he wants to help drive change through dialogue and hate sheep-dipping organizational transformations. Now, as someone who grew up in the countryside, I'm going to say that can't be all that bad. Daniel started out life hand-delivering video cassette tapes, but he's now aiming to help people have blockbuster conversations and help organizations, leaders, and teams get better at talking to each other and optimizing for conversational impact. Given some of the people I've worked with, their desired impact could well just be getting people to stop talking to them. But I'm hoping to get some tips tonight on how to break the ice and find common ground. Hi, Daniel. How are you tonight? Well, I really appreciate that you talked about my first job, which involved some difficult conversations we can get into at some point, but I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. I hope you weren't talking to the sheep, but I do have to ask for the record, what is a sheep dip organizational transformation? So sheep dipping, you may have seen in the field, like yes. actual sheep dipping is when you take a bunch of sheep and you sort of walk them through a, 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 a solution a literal solution of, you know, some sort of fungicide or bactericide or what have you that like treats them. Sheep dipping org transformations are ones where we dip people in a solution, (laughs) which might be like, oh, let's give them agile training. Let's teach everyone a product mindset. Let's teach everyone design thinking, whatever the uh, du jour, what I would say, conversation design is like the 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 model the the theory and you and i both know right what happens after those is something but not enough often not a lot there's a difference between talking and action words and deeds and there's a big gap between and you know, all the people who'd go through such a, a sheep dipping experience and they're like <laughs> basically there's research on this. I've written an article about it. I can we can put a link to it in it where we talk about like what's the minimum viable transformation. And the the studies show there's a couple of great TED talks on this where it's like it actually only takes like three percent of the population fully engaged in the change to create the change. Whereas often I've definitely heard people saying, like, no, we want everyone to have this, so on and so forth. So I think sheep dipping is where like you just like, hey, we're gonna do a one hour workshop for everybody or a webinar. <laughs> and like that's just not enough. It's just not enough. We know this. Yeah, there's that whole adage about people just effectively suffering through the course or suffering through the certification or whatever just to kind of get through it and then immediately forgetting it as soon as they leave the room. But I also do have to say I did grow up in the countryside. Yes. And my best friend did once fall into a sheep dip tank. <laughs> so uh, 
I'm well aware of the perils of sheep dipping. Well, here's the thing. Sheep dipping works. Sheep dipping works because it is a literal solution, but I think <laughs> a one-hour webinar where nobody's like, I mean, this is where I, I talk about conversation design, right? It's like where there's no dialogue, there's no simulation, there's no reflection, there's no, hey, let's come back in two weeks and talk about how we did. There's no commitment. There's no peer coaching. There's no structures and systems of conversations in place to like actually ensure that the conversation doesn't like just die off, but keeps going. We want to start a conversation about agility, but we don't put the energy in to continue the conversation about agility. And to me, that's like clearly a waste of time and money and everybody, and everybody who's in those situations knows it. Yeah. <laughs> bah. Got to check those boxes though. Got to check those boxes. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'd rather not engage in sheep to because it's it because I it I, you know I'm not going to lie I've done it you we've all we've if there are consultants listening like we've done it but I've just chosen to like say to clients like hey when's the last time you really got value for money out of this and then let's do something differently instead makes a lot of sense well we could talk about the ins and outs of sheep dipping all night but <laughs> we could. <laughs> We could, next but, on one night in sheep dipping <laughs> <laughs> now that would be bad anyway so you as discussed in the intro you're an executive coach yeah you're a lead facilitator you're a conversation designer at the conversation factory so yes i know what all of those words individually mean but what are you yourself specifically working on day to day at the conversation factory well i mean mostly conversation so yeah i mean look my theory is that we're all conversation designers. I mean, like you here, Jason Knight, like you sent me a survey with some basic questions. That's a way of designing the conversation. Oh, don't give it away. Well, I mean, look, I mean, <laughs> we, you could have an agenda. An agenda is a design for a conversation, right? And not having an agenda is a design for a conversation. Improv is a design for a conversation, right? I, I've coached leaders on this where it's like, oh, do you have a plan for your one-on-ones to get the most value out of them? And some people just, their mental model, their design for the conversation is, well, I'll just rock up and <laughs> see what's, what's going on. And, and you know what? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's other people who are like, no, no, there's four questions I ask every time. Like, how are you on the whelmed to underwhelmed to overwhelmed spectrum? What's keeping you up at night? How can I, what can I get out of your way? And they're like, these are my questions. And so they have in their minds a design for it. And so to me, I think, that is one way to look at designing conversations. You could think of it as like stakeholder management. All the people who like try to get all the cats herded. If we're going to talk sheep dipping. We can also talk about cat herding, <laughs> right? The people who herd cats and who have a, a the the mental models for change management. I would look at it as, well, I'm really trying to like shape the conversation in the organization about blank. And I think the the lens for me is once I start, you start to look at conversations that way, it just gives you a new lens. So, so for me, like I came from industrial design to product design to you know product design for me, God, like 15 years ago now, just meant physical products. And when I met my first digital product designer, I was like, "You don't design products? What are you talking about?" Because it was very <laughs> early days in product design, interaction design, HCI, all of that was just sort of emerging. And I was like, "Okay, so wait." That is product design. But then people said, no, no, we're actually doing service design. We're doing experience design. And I think each of those lenses on what it is that we're doing changes how we do it. And I remember the first time I heard someone use the term conversation design to describe their 
practice of creating facilitative experiences for senior leadership teams so that the conversation inside of the organization can change. I was like, what? You, how do you design a conversation? What does that even mean? Like, because I know how to design spaces, right? I studied that in school. Like, I know how to design interfaces because I studied, like, I, I went to like lots of interaction design conferences. Like, and there's rules and guidelines, there's best practices for all of these types of design. But when it comes to conversation design, like, we've all been to show of hands in podcast land. Like, how many meetings have you been to that are just god awful or useless? Or a waste of your time. And that's where I think the distribution of, yeah, this is Jason is counting on his fingers. He's run out of fingers. <laughs> and this is where I think the distribution of skill, intelligence, and expertise in conversation design is sorely lacking. Now, I mean, the problem is, Jason, I started this idea of conversation design and decided to write a book about designing conversations in like 2018. And then like, voice user interface became much, much more on the ascendant. And in 2019, 2020, people are like, oh, so like Alexa, like you do Alexa skills. And I get like so many recruiters trying to like <laughs> sell me on like remote voice user interface projects. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about every day you are in conversations with people and you either know how to shape them well or you don't. And to me, I think like nine times out of 10, the coaching conversations I have with leaders are they're against a wall on a very challenging conversation. And I say leadership is the skill, the ability to create the conditions for a transformational conversation, to create a breakthrough where like everyone's stuck and we can help people get unstuck by asking the right question, by offering the right insight, but in service of what we want to create more of. That's a very long tirade about, about all that stuff. <laughs> That's good, though, because it means that you've answered all my questions and we can all go down the pub. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's obviously plenty of stuff yeah. to dig into there, much of which we're going to dig into in the next mm -hmm. handful of minutes. But yeah, I wanted to also talk about, I mean, you kind of alluded to it slightly, like your background, like you've gone into industrial design, you've gone yeah. into product design, you're now in conversation design, and you kind of alluded to the fact that you'd kind of heard the phrase conversation design elsewhere. Yeah, And that really then sort of leads into my next question, which is how on earth you got into this stuff? I mean, yeah, you talked about mm -hmm. having some ropey meetings and some bad conversations yourself in the past, but what was it that actually got you into this as a trade and yeah. made this your passion? Well, I mean, like, I again, I think in the same way that there's a lot of ways to apply the thing. So for many years, I was working as a, um, what I guess in the UK, you might call like being a trainer, right? Yep where I was doing a lot of sheep dipping transformations on design thinking. Because I, I honestly, I'm still a true believer and lover of design thinking as a really powerful way of, you know, it's a big arc of how to design a conversation. Divergent, emergent, convergent, like discover, define, develop, deliver. Like it's such a great arc of a conversation from what's the problem? What's the insight? Who is this really for? Like all the product conversations, right? And the question for me was like, where in the value chain do I want to exist? Because I did a lot of those experiences. But one of the things I realized was, and I'm sure you've had this experience where people are like, oh, the wrong people are in this room. <laughs> yeah, normally it's me. <laughs> the right people are not in this room. They're like, oh, senior management should be here. Why, isn't, why aren't they part of this conversation? And that's something that happened to me for years where I was training middle managers, even senior managers. 
and they would hit walls. They would come back in the coaching conversations. We do these group coaching conversations and they would say like, you know, I'm trying to draw more in my meetings. And my boss is like, what the hell is this poster you just made? Like, where's the PowerPoint deck? Right. And we all know, universally speaking, that PowerPoint is the worst way to create a, a space for creative thinking. And, but there's a lot of organizations that are stuck in like, oh, this is how we have conversations. We PowerPoint at each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry. What's, I can see this is bringing up trauma for you. <laughs> no, it's just, it's interesting because it feels to me, and I've certainly been guilty of this myself in the past. And in fact, even did a presentation today, which had a few bullet points in it, almost that the, the PowerPoint, to your point about being the conversation, is like the PowerPoint's almost the skeleton of the conversation that they put up on the screen and they kind of just talk about each bullet point as it comes up in kind of animated fashion. Yeah. And to be honest, those are the good ones because actually the bad ones are like a wall of text, yeah, which is a little bit different to the thing that you're talking about. You mm -hmm, know, that, so people mm -hmm. are having to try and understand all of the text and read all the text whilst you're talking about something to the side of that or yeah. Something, you know, going deep on one part of it and they're trying to kind of basically take in two completely separate sources of insight at the same time, if there's any insight even in there. Almost like being a kind of a drummer having to play, you know, two hands separately. But it's a very hard skill. It is. And I guess what you're gonna say is that you've got a solution to that. Well, I mean, that's a like that's a whole other conversation. Like obviously <laughs> I think Amazon's approach to like or you know, the one pager or Matt LeMay, who I, you know, I know you know, like the, yeah, I know Matt. Yeah. You know the one page, one hour rule. I had him on my podcast to talk about his one page, one hour manifesto, and the idea of like, can you just explain it in one page? Spend an hour on it because the 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 Amazon like six pager is actually a forty pager that takes somebody like days to do, and I think that's <laughs> kind of insane. But to go back to the question of like my pathway in conversation design, at some point I realized. Before I met the people who talked about their work as conversation design, they were a group in Australia called Second Road. They got acquired by Accenture a few years ago. I had realized that what I was doing was facilitation. I had this name that sort of appeared in the ether of like, oh, I'm facilitating. And I started to realize I can teach other people how to facilitate because design thinking without facilitation is actually pretty, boy, I'm thinking of all the worst words to use, like flaccid, uh, impotent. It's like it's not effective, right? You need it's too you need the yin and yang of not just the map, but somebody who can be the wayfinder in that map. And I really loved teaching people those skills. But I think for me, one of the things I realized was it was often the way training is done, the way even the way facilitation is done is it's, it's kind of transactional. You'd come in and you do a half day or a couple of days, or you know, you do a week-long sprint. And I'd really struggled with, and for all the consultants out there, I don't think this is a very unique challenge of really developing a deeper relationship with my clients of like, not just coming in and being a fly by night, pun intended. <laughs> and there's two halves to the, the, it benefits me to be in a deeper relationship with my client because I get to see the impact. I get to learn more about how things really work for them so I can be more helpful, but it's also more financially sustainable to say, well, look, you've got a juicy problem. Like, I know a workshop isn't going to solve it. So let's talk about what would it look like to work together for a quarter and see if that works. And then let's commit to a year. And so for me, that looks a lot more like that's why executive coaching works for me because it's less, it's more relational and less transactional. And it's also because of the work that I've done. 
I've been in a men's group for the last four years. I've been co-leading a men's group. I coach and teach men's group skills, which is like facilitation, but on on mushrooms, I guess, basically. <laughs> it's it's a much more, you know, instead of just facilitating like what we what we are gonna think and do, it's like how we feel and the way we are. And because of my own interest in that other type of work, that's where I was like, oh, I actually want to design conversations that include the inner work as well as the outer work. And that's where working with founders and leaders, a lot of, you know, imposter syndrome and like my business has been like X for the last decade, but I'd really like my business to be like Y for the next decade. Those are really hard questions and a lot of personal stuff comes up in it. And so to me, the kinds of conversations I enjoy, I used to enjoy, and I'm still good at facilitating like a hundred people in a room for an hour. Right. But that's, and there's not like, that's a big circus versus like getting with two co-founders in a room and getting them to slow down and say what's really going on and why it's hard for them to get aligned and unlocking empathy between them so that they can keep building instead of breaking up and destroying the company. (laughs) Not hypothetically. No, I'm sure there's been at least one that you've seen do that. (laughs) I've been part of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we'll talk about that later. We'll have a good conversation about that. But let's talk about some of those skills that you've been alluding to and Mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. some of the practical steps that people can do and some of the I guess, hallmarks of a good conversation, because I think, you know, you've already alluded to, again, the the concept that we're all having conversations all the time. We're having conversations at work, amongst colleagues, with leaders, you know, with customers, all of those people. Mm-hmm. And you've written a book called Good Talk, which promises a step-by-step framework to yes. help us all design conversations that matter. Mm-hmm. So going to the very heart of conversational design. Yes. Available wherever fine books are sold, as <laughs> we <Sweet> say. <laughs> And all the ropey places as well. Yeah. But just as an elevator pitch version for that book, then, like, what would you say the ultimate use case for that book is and the desired audience or the ideal audience for that book? Yeah. I mean, like, I really tried to make something, my, my real dream, one of my, some of my favorite books are what I would call bathroom books. Yep. They're books that you can leave by the loo, I believe you call it, and you can kind of open <laughs> to any one page. So, like, there's a book I have over here called The Decision Book, which I like highly recommend. If you, do you know The Decision Book? I do not, but I get the feeling I'll, be, I'll know it soon. It's 50 models for strategic thinking. And it's one of these things where like every spread or so, they kind of break their layout structure, which bothers me as a, as a designer. <laughs> I'm like, oh, is it real? Like my friend Abby Covert, who wrote a book, uh, How to Make Sense of Any Mess, I learned from her like one page, one idea. And I made one spread, like one larger idea. And for me, I tried to look at what are the conversations that matter. So there's just the spectrum of size. Like I looked at it from a very dumb physics. I have a degree in physics and I was like, okay, well, there's big conversations. Those are small conversations. I didn't expect to write a chapter about conversations with ourselves, but I think they're obviously really important. I talked about like the nature of a two person conversation. So like think of like one on ones and, conversations with your friends with your mom and like bigger conversations like team conversations and then bigger than that like community and culture so i think anybody who's trying to create a shift in any of these conversations each section is about one of those specific sizes of conversation 
and tries to offer like one framework, an exercise, a story about each bit so that you can like just sit down and kind of like see a picture and like look at the framework. And if you, I, I find books very, very confrontational. So to me, like being able to be like, oh, you mean I can open it any page and like, like look at two or three things and kind of like get something that to me is easier to, to digest a book. So that's my, that's my, my, my micro pitch for a good talk. <laughs> Just put it by your bathroom. I wish I'd made it slightly smaller. Yep. My publisher wanted to make it six by nine, which is like the standard business book. And I'm like, no, dude, that's a really like, let's make it five by eight. It's just a cuter size. And to me, that's the conversation. Like, this is even smaller. This, I think, is like four by six. And I love this size. Yeah. Because this is like a very, this is almost like you could put it in your breast pocket. That to me is conversation design. Can I take this with me and be in relationship to it whenever I want to be? Yeah, rather than some of these ridiculous, massive hardcover oh, books. God, that you get and, out and you're that... like, oh, and your publisher tells you, yes, and you, when you, because you're going to write a book and, and you will, you should, they'll tell you, like, oh, it's got to be 350 <laughs> pages or 250 at least in order to be taken seriously. And I say, like, write a friendly book. Oh, yeah. Write a small book. People love small books. <laughs> smaller the better. Yeah, the smaller the better. This book could have been a medium post. <laughs> nobody wants to be in that situation maybe not that small no but let's talk then about some of the skills that the book teaches you then so yeah within the book you've got the conversation os canvas mm -hmm. which provides some structure to designing conversations and i believe there are nine points in there so we don't have to go through them all one by one in like excruciating detail but i wondered if you could give maybe a a flavor of how the canvas is laid out and some of the key considerations when designing a conversation. Totally. So like, I'll give like a little bit of backstory if I can. Yeah, for sure. My perspective came partly from my physics and my industrial design perspective where I thought to myself, I understand the materiality of my first semester in design school and in industrial design school in, in Pratt in Brooklyn. We did this, this class where they would trundle us around the New York City area. And there's actually a, a lot of light industry still here. So you'd go to a, like an aluminum casting factory, and then we'd learn how aluminum is cast. And then we would have to design something that was like in that style. And then you're like, okay, so now we're going to do metal spinning, which is such a cool process. And you're like, okay, we'll design something for metal spinning or roto-molded plastic. And that's where I started to realize each material dictate something about form. You say form follows function, but the material also dictates something about form. And when we were, before we started recording, you were talking about your mental CPU, which is a really great metaphor to unpack. The question is like, what is, what kind of software is your mental CPU running? What's its operating system? And what's its clock speed? And the basic truth is, in general, everybody's running some basic software. And everybody's got their own programs running on that OS. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, in all conversation design, there's this classic quote that the biggest challenge in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And the reason that <laughs> happens is because I can think, it's really hard to study how fast we can think. And there's some great books about it. Charles Finney Rao, The Voices Within, there's a great Atlantic article about it that I, I absorbed his book through. I'm still working through his much larger book of 
how do we internalize speech as we grow older? Because you can watch kids kind of talk to themselves. You have kids, so you see that they kind of like coach themselves as they're going through challenges. Yep. And we can think like you could kind of clock it at thousands of words per minute. In the sense that it's actually in some senses almost instantaneous that you put together like five or six things and images and to explain what you just thought of to someone actually can take several minutes. Well, I was thinking about this and then I realized that and then there was this other thing that I forgot about and then boom, I I realized this and all of that happened in, in an instant. We can only speak at 125 words per minute. And so to me, I think one of the most fundamental things about everybody's conversation operating system is that the cadence and turn-taking, so those are two elements of the OS Canvas, there's this expectation that when I have been talking too long, someone should step in. When I stop, you should speak, because cadence, the cadence that we expect is about 200 milliseconds. The only gap a gap of like more than 200 milliseconds feels like dead air. It takes us approximately 600 milliseconds to kind of put together what we're really, what we really want to say. And so usually what's <laughs> happening is because of the, that's a bad 400 milliseconds in the middle. Ba- of that. Yeah. So usually that's why people go like, um, or, you know what I was thinking, uh, or what people are really doing is they kind of stop listening 100% to someone in the back third of what someone's saying. And so in order to create really deep conversations, one of the things you have to do is change the cadence. So as a facilitator, we say, slow things down. We have a talking stick. Say, Jason's going to finish. And we say, Jason, are you complete? I'm complete. You have to actually indicate that you're done. And you've we've all seen this. Everyone here listening knows this, where I know where you're going with this, and it's a stupid idea, <laughs> right? And <laughs> Again, you're having to go at me again. No, well, I mean, it, it's like we've <laughs> all done this because we want to speed things up. And so to me, yeah. look, I've done all these workshops where I ask people, like, what do you think conversations are made out of? And then let's subdivide by what we think we can actually shape. And so we could say conversations are made of words, like speech acts. We can control what we say sometimes. I'm not picking on you again, Jason. but people say like emotions and vibes and i'm like yeah but i can't actually control my emotions i know that and i know i can't control someone else's emotions so the elements of the conversation OS cannabis are ones that i was thinking as a facilitator what can i actually like get my hands on and that's why space the interface for the conversation is so important so there's some elements of the conversation OS cannabis that are like very chunky like turn taking and cadence and space and goals, and people, because we know that small conversations are less complex. A person's conversations with themselves are very complex. A two-person conversation is everything I meant to say, everything you think I said, everything I thought you said, like layered on top of each other. But when you add three or four or five people, it gets really hairy really fast, which is why the, you know, the people who design sprint conversations say, look, seven, capping it out at seven. And we've got to have a decider. We're designing the conversation to say, at some point, we're out of time, who gets to make the call? So that's designing power structures in the conversation, where normally it's unclear who gets to make the call, especially at flat organizations. So in, in, like in Google at large, by the way, the sprint is just more of a dialogue, because there is no decider. 
So deciding what the power structures are, well, who gets to decide what the power structures are? So power is an element of the OS canvas. Like, Can we intentionally redesign the power structures of a conversation to say, who gets to kick someone out? Who gets to invite people in? I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a consultant. He's like, oh my God, we've done seven revisions of this report because secret stakeholders keep showing up and (laughs) offering notes and we have to do another revision. And my boss has offered them two extra revisions because they just feel bad. Well, that's, that's all their conversation. We didn't design the conversation well enough. So these are all elements of the OS canvas. To me, I think the two that are weirdest, most ephemeral, but I think most important are narrative or threading. So like in conversations, there's like a thread. Like we try to pick up the thread, we lose the thread. And threading winds up looking like what's the story of what's happening? How is each moment of the conversation connected to another? And I was just, I just got off a call this morning with two co-founders separately that are having a real come to Jesus moment where each of them has a story of what the last five years has entailed, right? One of them has very strong feelings about why it has to be one way. And another of them feels a very strong sense of based on the story and the future story I want to write, it's got to be like this. And it's pretty much like, well, who's going to budge? Because I've given up so many times. And this is really like, this is where story, one of the hardest things to see and shift. But once you start to see stories as an element of conversations, can we shift the stories in conversations? It's legitimately hard. That's a, I mean, I've talked about most of them, but to me, I think it's up to everyone to decide what they are capable of shifting because it's everyone has to decide for themselves. Like, you know, can I speak up? Can I take power in this moment and say, hey, I don't think we're actually on track or we're not meeting the goals of this conversation? Everyone has that power, but taking that power in order to shift the conversation is actually really legitimately hard. But how much of that is about really, I mean, I'm sure it's part of conversation design, but really fostering a culture of psychological safety where people are actually able to speak up in front of yeah. people that potentially well, have more de facto power than them and actually having the confidence, like you know, like you see in like the Netflix book about sure. how it's almost seen as an abrogation of responsibility if you don't speak truth to power. But right. I don't necessarily feel that that's the case in a rather large number of companies. So the question is like, and I think I've definitely worked with people who have asked the very legitimate question, well, how do I actually foster psychological safety? They want to know, how do I design a conversation to make sure that happens? And I would say, in your one-on-ones on on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, saying, what feedback do you have for me? And actually demonstrating that you can take it. In a meeting, saying, I'd like to hear everyone's perspective, and I'd like everyone to tell me, like, it's built. That's why I say it's still a you design the conditions for that transformative conversation. You can't just say, oh, let's have a psychologically safe conversation after years of abuse. You have to, week on week, create the conditions for psychological safety by slowing down and inviting it, by making it clear that the power to decide is not just going to be rested in you, but in the team, that there's a a reason for them to speak up, that they will be heard. And so I think the how to do it on a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month basis comes down to you can structure it. And you can even fake it till you make it, right? Like 
if a leader's like, God, I just, I just, you just say, I can't, I keep like cutting my people off and they, you know, my, my engagement scores are low and I'm not getting creativity. And I say, well, okay, well, can you slow down? Can you count? Just, it's what my parents would say. Can you count to three or four? <laughs> can you structure a meeting where you make sure that everyone gets to speak? Can you bring in a check-in at the beginning of each meeting where people say, I'm feeling in the red or I'm feeling in the yellow and I'm in the green? Can you actually create a space where everyone feels like they personally matter, how they are matters? So I think even if you are not an empathetic leader and you know you should, <laughs> like I hear all this BS about like, I don't know, caring about people and making them feel safe or some shit. Like, I don't know. How do I trick people into thinking I care? I'd say, oh, okay, cool. Like, you're a terrible person. <laughs> but if you do this check-in, people will start to feel like they matter. Yeah. So I, I think like you, yes, psychological safety, but how psychologically, how, how do we create that? Like, it doesn't come for free. Well, I guess there's also an argument that if they're faking it, that at least a it kind of gives the effect anyway, but if they fake it well, like you kind of just touched on. Yes. But also maybe that does subtly start to nudge them as well. Like it yeah. starts to nudge them into thinking that that's actually a good thing. And even if they're just pretending for the rest of their lives, at least they kind of internalize the behaviors and yeah. kind of make themselves look like psychologically safe leaders at the very least, even if they don't really feel it in their heart of hearts. Yes. My, my friend Fred Dust, who wrote a book called Making Conversation, he's an ex-IDO big wig. And so you designed it and he made it. This is like a great little partnership. I know. Going. I know. It's really funny because we had a conversation. Our books came out at a similar time and I was like, oh my God, it's, there's somebody else who thinks this way. It was very <laughs> nice. And he was like, God, my, my publisher wouldn't let me use the word design. And I'm like, making conversation is this great. You know, it's a double entendre in the same way that my book, Good Talk, <laughs> is a double entendre. Hey, good talk. But he said, like, he's kind of against this idea of active listening because it is kind of mechanical. But at the same time, active listening is one of these things like you can mechanically train yourself to just parrot back what somebody said. And because of the talking thinking gap, there's always more that someone could say. There's literally, remember, it's 4,000 words per minute to like 125 words per minute. So it's, it's a factor of 10 more that they've got on their mind. And so act, well, I think once I, I've said this at a keynote a couple of months ago, where a group of tech founders really got it. They were like, oh my God, there's a fundamental flaw in the operating system of conversations. Because I, to assume that I've heard what they meant, to, everything they meant to say is flawed. And so once they realized that they were looking at it through the wrong lens, active listening is a great way to say, well, like, okay, so you just said this. Is, did I get that right? And so that's where active listening becomes an act that is based on a fundamental belief that there's no way you heard everything that they wanted to say about it. And active listening is just a good way of designing a conversation to get more from the person about what they were, about what they really meant to say. And the fact that you probably got it wrong because you were thinking half the time. And so to me, active listening is a great trick. It's a great way to redesign conversations. It's a durable design. Say, hey, I heard you say this. Is that right? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you say, is there more? And they go, yeah, this. And then you, I have a, an article about what I call the listening triangle, or rather a listening triangle model that I stole from HBR. They, they just didn't make a nice, <laughs> they didn't draw a nice picture for it. 
And it's like, okay, so you triangulate. You say, oh, I listened. I reflected. Now I'm going to ask again, and then I'm going to listen again. I'm going to keep doing that until you're like, okay, I'm ready to move on to the next subject. And so that's where active listening isn't enough because you need to re-ask. You say, so it sounds like you're saying this. And then you ask a little bit differently, and then they tell you more. And if you're trying to do product conversations with someone, everyone knows if you're doing user interviews, there's no way. And that's actually how I got started in realizing conversations needed redesigning. I was doing a lot of customer interviews. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to ask my next question on the list while they're about to give me more information about my last question and blow out. And then you say, oh, what did you want to say? And they're like, oh, I can't remember. Never mind. And you're like, well, shit. <laughs> now I'm never going to like learn what it is that they were saying. So learning how to slow down a little bit and ask a little bit more, that is a way to redesign conversations just to get better stuff out of people. I think it's interesting from a coaching perspective as well, that kind of playback and reframing and restating things yeah. is really helpful, not only to make sure that you've heard them properly, but it actually it actually lets them know what, what they just said sounded like as well. Mm-hmm. And I've had so many occasions where coaches have been like, oh yeah, no, I get it now. Like just by the fact that you just mm-hmm. say it back to them and they kind of realize either how good or bad or indifferent the thing that they said sounded when played back to them through someone else's ears and they start to realize maybe some of the things that they've missed out or some of the things yeah, they almost get to realize what they should concentrate on yeah without you even having to tell them which i think is like the very core of coaching right oh it, it's a very powerful aspect of it that in the book there's a story that i heard on npr about a woman who would go walk her dog and like leave herself voice messages about what was on her mind and then listen back to them and it's so powerful to see your thoughts laid out that way. And I've done this for myself now. I, I use a lot of automated, I have an automated transcription service that I use for my, my coaching clients. And I can just get on a Zoom call with myself and talk some things out and then look at the transcript with myself and be like, wow, okay, yeah, I see what I'm thinking there. And I can kind of piece together my thoughts. When somebody asks me like, oh, are you like, will I get something out of coaching? Like how good of a coach are you? There's this idea of rubber ducking. And I would say to somebody, like, if you can commit to taking a two-hour bath every other week with yourself and just really talking things out to a rubber duck and recorded the conversations, looked at the transcript, and then spent another 20 or 30 minutes doing sense-making from it, you would get value from that. You'd also get very pruny fingers, but they would get value out of it. But I found that like most people have a really hard time committing to themselves. right? This is why like group fitness is so powerful. This is why peer groups are so powerful. And this is why consultants are powerful. Sometimes I think people are just paying for their own time, right? And so because a client is paying me, it's much, they have, there's, there's just a higher commitment level. So they're not going to flake on the call. Plus, I ask good questions. A rubber duck just sits there and, and squeaks. So I, I, I think, <laughs> I mean, this is why therapy is useful. This is why coaching is useful. For anybody who's a verbal processor, I think, it is very hard to pull apart all of the elements of our own internal conversation because we have multiple stakeholders. We have what I think I should do, what I think I deserve, what I ought to do, what I can't do. All of these elements, like what my mother would do, like what my co-founder would do, what would make people proud, what would make people angry, all of these different stakeholders. And we just have to pull them apart and figure out like, what do I really want? Such an important question. No, absolutely. But let's bring that back then to that OS canvas. And yeah, you talked a lot about some of the things that you do to 
fill that canvas in basically and to design those conversations but Mm -hmm. is this then something that you're effectively doing before each individual conversation or is it something where maybe you Mm. set some norms and rules and expectations kind of effectively globally that you kind of always have within your organization and maybe tweak it or do you have to basically design it every time i think that's a great question so slowing things down for example like looking at the cadence of the conversation and focusing on turn-taking We'll just, you know, for any leader listening, for anybody who's in meetings, just doing that, you can say, oh, I'm going to do active listening. So for me, realizing that the function of active listening is slowing down the conversation and using my turn not to say more, but to learn more is a reprogramming of my operating system. Because some people are programmed to take every opportunity to like drive the conversation forward and get more or say more or push more, right? And so I think there's just like global general ways that people can reboot their OS and just look at like, hey, globally, am I getting what I need out of my conversations and what needs to shift versus using the OS canvas as a lens to say, okay, we're having this offsite, right? What do I want the cadence or the goals, what people... What's the story I want them to say about it afterwards? Like, So you can use it as a lens for a big conversation. I know that when people say conversation design, this is a question that comes up. It's like, oh, do I have to design every goddamn conversation? <laughs> and I say, well, you are. But you are already designing them, either with a habitual, outmoded. You know, Steve Jobs, who should be quoted cautiously because he was a bit of a jerk, <laughs> and it, you know he's a brilliant man he pointed out like the whole world has been designed by people who are no smarter than us and this means that we have the opportunity to redesign the world and that means that like why are so many meetings when we had meetings in person in an office with a long table where there's a tv at one end and a brick wall and a felt wall and then like a glass wall and it's like, well, where do I put my sticky notes? Like, you've had this, pro- I've had this problem. These Ooh, are not yeah. spaces that were designed for collaborative conversations. And so really looking at the whatever conversations that matter most to you, and then asking to yourself, am I getting what I need? What can I change? How do I want to change it? What change can I commit to? What does good look like on the other side? Then I think it's worth, the juice is going to be worth the squeeze. I don't think everyone needs to go around asking like, oh my God, do I need to redesign this? Do I need to write this? But you say like, look, if I'm not getting what I want out of my one-on-ones, I should probably look at redesigning them. Maybe I need to bring in more coaching skills or more active listening perspectives, whatever it is. If I'm not getting what I need to out of my all-hands meetings, a classically poor-designed meeting, a gathering, right? If I'm not getting what I need at home, I mean, men and women in heterosexual relationships often have incredibly complex challenges getting along after many years because of the ways that men and women are acculturated to tend to speak. Obviously, there's like incredible diversity in how people approach conversations. Women are punished for seeming bossy, right? It's like women get this feedback all the time. And and when I coach women and they're being told they're getting feedback in their annual reviews that they're bossy, I'm like, okay, you have the option to look at that and see what you can do to change that story. But acknowledge that that's a lot of work. And probably some of this is based on uh, them looking at you through a much longer story of how women are supposed to be, right? 
And so engaging in that conversation carries a lot of baggage. And so do they want to redesign that conversation? Or would they like to go to a company, pull up stakes and go to a company where there's just more balanced leadership and where women aren't seen through that negative lens? So to me, it's always, we can design our conversations better. Of course, every single one can be. But it takes time. It takes effort. It takes care and love and patience and attention. And I want people to get juice for whatever squeeze that they put into it. No, absolutely. I think there's a lot of really important points there. And I think also just to call out that one really important thing, and I've chatted to others about this in the past, is being the upstander in the room as well when you see some of that stuff happening to actually try and call out. Totally. Like, for example, if you see that happening to a woman, it's just important to actually stand up for that person and call out the person that's exhibiting those behaviors, which is maybe not 100% designing a conversation, but I think it's just good etiquette and hygiene and you know oh it is absolutely designing a conversation because everyone has the ability to speak up but again men who speak up are seen as you know taking initiative and being uh proactive and women who speak up aren't in the book there's a story about how in the obama administration women noticed that their ideas they would they would pitch an idea or bring up a point and it would kind of get like kicked around the room and then eventually a man would <laughs> like speak to it and yep. he would kind of wind up with have you, have you read this bit he would kind of wind I've up with heard this story it. so many times it's yeah. like it's, it's just become part of the social fabric of the world i think <laughs> yeah so and he they realized they kind of all got together and you're like are you seeing what we are seeing <laughs> and so they came up with a conversation design strategy yep which they called amplification and you could also look at it as redesigning the thread of the conversation because we've seen how we've all been in meetings where the thread kind of like drifts and we're like wait why are we talking about this can we bring it back to this and that is somebody's read weaving redesigning the conversation so the women in the team would just be like oh tom really i'm glad you like audrey's idea your points uh really emphasize the core value of audrey's idea and we should definitely mark those down in the notes as great yes ands to Audrey's idea. And then when it would go back off again, they were like, yeah, Thomas, you and you guys are all having great ideas that amplify Audrey's idea. And they would just each, all the women colluded to say, we will make sure that we reweave the conversation back to amplification of the originator of the idea when it's a lady. And I was like, that is designing of the conversation. Yeah. It's work. It is work. And eventually, I think Obama noticed it, right? And it made a difference and eventually they wrote about it and that's when people realize, "Oh my god, this isn't just me." And then everyone can start to do it. And that's what I mean by design. Like a design is something where you're like, "Oh, I can take that design and I can reuse it someplace else." So when I say rose thorn bud, like Let's talk about what's good and what's not good and what has potential. Rose Thorn Bud is one of those like hilariously dumb, simple conversation designs that like it works good for a retro. It works good for a one on one. It works good for a year end personal reflection. It's great for like my wife and I do a daily Rose Thorn Bud when we're like on vacation because it helps us remember what's going on. It's just good in the same way that active listening fundamentally redesigns conversations for the better. 
all women realizing that this is a flaw in the operating system <laughs> and that they can like <laughs> then they can do something about it is good no absolutely and something that we should all try and help out with as best we can we need to make sure that we can 100% again be those upstanders and make sure that we call people out and drive good behaviors like we talked about earlier like maybe you don't fix it all in one go but if you can fix it step by step and nudge 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 then yeah yeah hopefully you get somewhere good at the end of it yeah it's like start where you feel the most pain yeah well put up people we prioritize right yeah exactly make a conversation (laughs) backlog you can do a kanban make sure you don't have too much conversation debt by the way look (laughs) at your calendars i guarantee you have conversation debt like yeah there's a i had a podcast guest uh, emily lovada who's head of product now at embark veterinary services at the time she was at wayfair and she talked about this two by two matrix of quality you could talk think of it as like i don't have it in front of you like amount and quality of communication and if we have like way too much high quality conversation we actually can get burnout and so a leader's job is to like slowly delete amount until while maintaining quality and until quality starts to suffer and then you repeat because we need to have a meeting about meetings most people have tons of conversation backlog debt like how many meetings a week that are just standing meetings that are no longer serving their purpose no 100 percent. and i think as with everything in the world product principles basically apply everywhere right so like you say we need to make sure we yeah. Pay down our conversation debt and <laughs> we're prioritizing relentlessly to make sure that we're changing the things that are causing us the most pain and hopefully deliver the most value. Well, we could talk about this all night, but obviously can't see your time. <laughs> so I do have to ask, where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about conversation design in general? Mm-hmm. Dig into the Conversation OS canvas or mm-hmm. maybe even see if you've got any old VHS tapes kicking around. <laughs> I might still have some. I'm highly Googleable. DanielStillman.com is my my coaching website. And then you can people can find links to the book. There's a like they can download a bunch of free chapters and some worksheets from the book all for free there. And they can see my podcast, which you are gonna be on very soon. I'm very excited about I know. About. Who knew? It's, it's <laughs> almost like we've kind of scratched each other's back on this one or something. <laughs> well, I'm really excited for that conversation. And so like yeah, my just like you, my my podcast is where I learn about how people are designing their conversations well or what challenges they have around conversations. Well, I'll make sure to link all of that information into the show notes if you want to send me any links or articles and I'll make sure to link those in too so we can get a few people both heading your direction, sparking up effective conversations and learning a bit about themselves at the same time. Yeah. Well, that's been a fantastic, well, conversation. So obviously really (laughs) glad we could spend the time going deep into the concepts of conversation design. Uh, obviously we'll stay in touch and indeed be chatting soon on your podcast but as for now thanks for taking the time jason thank you so much for the like the really great questions and holding space for this conversation it's important as always thanks for listening i hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again i can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.